Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, the New Republic and the changing media environment. So, Richard, there's been big news recently out of the New Republic, long considered – it's been around for over a century, has long been considered sort of one of the intellectual flagships of the political left. And now you have this story with a massive sacking of staff there and sort of widespread recriminations against uh, Chris Hughes, the, the publisher of the magazine. What, what do you make of this, this shakeout that's occurred all of a sudden? Well, I think the shakeout is, in fact, probably a response to uh, the juvenile antics of Chris Hughes. You know, one tries to be charitable to people whom everybody else excoriates, but when you read the particulars <laughs> of the indictment, it turns out they seem to be pretty powerful. I mean, the man was very lucky to be the roommate of Mark Zuckerberg. He earned seven hundred million dollars and is then asked to leave Facebook, uh, which is probably a wise move for Facebook. He has enough loose change in his pockets to want to take on projects. Everything he takes on before the New Republic turns out to be a failure. And in 2010, he buys it, and he promises to do more and better with it than anybody had ever done before. And one of the things that you always worry about when you hear those things is that it's cheap to make claims and hard to follow up on them. And generally speaking, great expectations of that sort usually lead to profound failures. Um, Many of the people who wrote some of the sharpest criticism of him, um, at the end of the day, were some of his greatest praisers earlier on in the process when they thought there was hope. But it was quite clear that he did what a lot of people do wrong in these cases. Instead of trying to figure out how he keeps the journalism going, uh, what he does is he invests in fancy new quarters with great views over some portion of the Washington, D.C. landscape, uh, runs the expense bill up to the point where I think he basically multiplies fivefold the deficit that he had inherited, which for a small magazine that is a million-dollar-a-year deficit is unsustainable. After a while, he becomes to realize that he's not going to be able to do anything much with this. It's not that the New Republic did anything that was terrible in terms of its change in attitude or style. In fact, its webpage actually got better rather than worse in terms of its number of hits and activities in the last year. But Given the financial hole that he put them in, he had to find a way to jumpstart this into something much more dramatic. Uh, the new entrants like Fox could capital $100 million in uh, venture capital money, and God knows what they're going to talk about. He can't compete with them, so what he had to do was to keep the old profile. We're not rich in cash, but we're rich in, rich in tradition. We're rich in loyalty and so forth. I'm not going to break that model. He broke the model on the cash side by spending too much much and then he had to break it on the content side in an effort to jump start and it's quite clear if you look at the cast of characters he had who were running it these were all old style sort of viennese intellectuals of one sort or another for whom the kind of pandering that chris chris hughes thought he would do was going to be ultimately insoluble they figured out what the difference is he was very classless in the way in which he got rid of these people he sort of appointed somebody Fourier found out about this only by indirection instead of being told by his boss himself and so in addition to all the financial fiascos of a man like chris hayes it turns out that he has no skills whatsoever in people no people skills whatsoever in dealing with a staff that he fired so what they did is they took a tradition and they trashed And look, it's very hard to build institutions like the New Republic up, even if you have lots of criticisms about what they do. But one thing that you learn is it's very easy 
tear them down. And, you know, every column that I've read on this subject in the last several days has ended with farewell, the new republic, 1914 to 2014. It's a big change in intellectual climate. In the end, they couldn't adjust intellectually, I think, but that's not what killed them in the short run. What killed them in the short run was the unquestioned vanity of a single guy who was basically rich on the one hand, but wildly overrated on the other. Let's talk Self about overrated. those. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, let's talk about those, those intellectual adjustments for a moment. Because when you look at the history of the New Republic, century-long history, one of the things that stands out to you is the, the sheer number and also sort of diversity of figures that have populated that magazine, starting with people like Walter Lippmann and Herbert Crowley, but going across the years to um, people like uh, Charles Krauthammer, people like Andrew Sullivan, um, people like Fred Bard. I mean there's it's Michael Kinsley. It just sort of runs, runs the gamut. When you look at what the New Republic has turned into in recent years, do, can, you, can you tease something out about that, about the intellectual state of the left? Yeah, I think what happened is when the uh, progressives started up in 1914, they perceived themselves as being ascendant in terms of their intellectual commitment and sophistication. Uh, at that particular time, laissez-faire conservatism was rather at a low ebb. You could go around American universities and you could not find anybody who was, um, shall we say, in sync with the old ways. Take people like Felix Frankfurt, who was very active in this. He was one of the leaders of the progressive movement that led to the Constitutional Revolution in 1937. He joins the court a couple of years later, becomes himself something of a conservative. But these guys were on the upswing and there was nobody out there. So you could claim political reform on the one hand and intellectual sophistication went together. The year is now, say, 2014 as opposed to 1914. And the progressive stuff is now tied up with Barack Obama, who as a political leader, I think will go down as a, a clear failure. And the reason is he has not been able to adjust any of his policies to go beyond the kinds of bromides that seemed to work in 1914. You know, I have long been of the belief that the progressive movement in the first part of the 20th century was one of the great catastrophes for this nation in terms of the institutions that it put into place. Uh, essentially, you scratch a progressive and you find somebody who will have an industry that he will cartelize in one form or another, whether you're talking about motor vehicles, whether you're talking about labor unions, whether you're talking about agriculture, whether you're talking about air lines. The list just goes on and on because they always thought that the insider should be given the nod because they had no systematic understanding of the strengths and virtues of competitive institutions. They had a cross between Bismarckian socialism on the one hand and a kind of a wild-eyed expertise optimism on the other. Uh, they would essentially go from cradle to grave and their bunch of administrative geniuses would take things on. Uh, the first attack on this of a powerful nature is something like um, Hayek writing in the late 1930s, culminating, I think, in his 1944 book on the road to serfdom. And for a while, I think there was some effort on the part of the New Republic to adjust to the fact that there was a counter-intellectual revolution, which might have some legs. And indeed, when Marty Peretz took this thing over, very strong pro-Israel, but kind of Catholic in his taste, um, I think there was a period in the 1980s and so forth where the names that you mentioned were on there, and the New Republic was a pretty formidable instrument. But you looked at its latest issues, and you know something clearly has changed. 
all of the voices on the right disappear and you see a cover of Ruth Ginsburg. She's wearing one of these elegant black dresses with a white collar around it. There is a fancy series of paneled rooms behind us and there is beneath it a red light sort of coming up so it looks as though she's an angel being lifted on her way to heaven and the headlines talks about her as an American hero. That's not journalism. That's hagiography. Um, It's the kind of thing when you see it on a cover, you say, why doing it? Jeff Rosen, who's a good friend of mine, runs the National Constitution Center and does a terrific job in that operations, writes this piece. But I'm just looking at this and saying, this is just sycophantic. And, you know, I'm not the only one who starts to think that. So that uh, by the time this fiasco took place just a week or two ago, circulation of the New Republic was down to 42,000 a year, which is probably a lot less than it had in its peak period and is not enough to sustain a a journalistic enterprise, which is going to try to get so many skilled and high-priced um, authors on the payroll. Hughes was very free with the money at the beginning, but he spent it on much the wrong things. And so they all left, including some people there who were rather good. So, I mean, it is a tragedy to see the thing fall. Uh, but I do think that it's a mistake simply to concentrate on the short term. That is on the antics of Chris Hughes. One has to think about the long-term cycle in which the inward leftward look becomes much more there. You know, they've reviewed a number of my books. Most recently, they announced uh, in reviewing my classical liberal constitution, that I was the illustration of the Tea Party constitution and of dogmatic libertarianism. You know, I thought of myself in a lot of ways. That's not one of them. And my attitude is, why is it in order to sell books that they have to engage in a kind of caricature which they themselves know to be false? And I'm not the only one, I think, who gets his nose bent a little bit out of joint when they sort of watch them going. They have too many friends about whom they are uncritical and too many intellectual opponents about they are much too harsh. And in the end, they're going to lose all but the true believers and they're going to lose it to a whole variety of journals, some of which try to populate the intellectual space, so not quite the way they did, like the Atlantic magazine and then these new upstart publications that are online, which are fast and nimble, a little bit more profane in the way in which they work and don't have this sort of single-minded political political earnestness. I kind of will miss the New Republic for that reason. I'm somebody who likes to be bored when I read literature. <laughs> I, I don't want to sit there and, and see people kind of basically trying to titillate me all the time. There are many outlets to get those kinds of advantages. It's hard to get serious discussion, and that used to be the sort of the mode of the uh, New Republic, but it lost the intellectual earnestness as it became more politicized in its own judgments, and that's something that preceded Chris Hughes, but he's so uninformed about anything and everything in the world that he would be utterly helpless to correct the situation. He is, as best I can tell, pretty much an uneducated guy. Okay, so we've talked about what the New Republic has done wrong. Let's talk about what they haven't done right, which is to say in in this atmosphere, in the, in the contemporary environment, how in your judgment, Richard, do you put together um, an, an intellectually worthy publication? Well, what are, what it, are the necessary requirements? Well, look, I mean, I basically write in one sense in the in the New Republic tradition. That was when I write my columns, what I do is I sit down and I think of something to say, and I say it. Uh, this is very passe today. Uh, what happens is that the typical column in the journalist situation is there's always a breathless disclosure. There are a series of conversations with all sorts of people so that in the course of an article of, say, three or 4,000 words, 
maybe 10 or 15 notables who are quoted for one thing or another. Uh, there are all sorts of sort of empirical revelations about this, that, or the other operation. And there's an effort to kind of create a breathless timeless timeliness about it. And that seems to sell a lot more companies than writing something which you could have written today, you could write 10 years from now, or write 10 years ago. And, and the theory of modern journalism seems to be you have to hit the wave when it comes out. You don't worry about what's going to come afterwards a year or three months later or whatever the time period is. I think the New Republic did not quite understand that any more than I understand it in the way in which I write. But if you're trying to deal with a world in which there's hype and timeliness and you're writing something which is remote and cerebral, it's quite clear that if the readers are moving in the opposite direction, you're not going to be able to keep them. And when I think that Chris Webb said he'd like to have a vertical web digital integrated operation, I think what he wanted to do was to be a little bit more up-tempo in the way in which he wrote things. And for that, you can't keep the old New Republic staff any more than you would want to hire me for the new New Republic staff. You've got to get journalists of a different age, a different sensibility amongst themselves, people who are more street savvy and wise, people for whom the intersection between politics and intellectual life is much closer than we think about it, for people who think that issues and personalities really matter in a way in which I don't think that they necessarily do. You have to be able to do more of the ad hominem even than the New Republic did. Uh, it's just a different kind of world. I happen to say, I prefer the new republic style but i don't regard myself as the typical reader between 18 and 36 i'm twice that age now so um you just can't judge the way in which something's going to succeed by uh, watching yourself what i do is i talk to my students and find out what it is that they like and what it is that they hear and tease them all the time about the generation gap between them and me and they look at me and say yes he's an educated dinosaur but a dinosaur nonetheless um, uh, we tolerate him in class because he does know about recordation systems and adverse possession but when it comes to uh, high stepping we know that we will look elsewhere for whatever it is that we want and i think in that sense the new republic has missed the mood chris hughes figured that out could not figure out how to bring the staff along with him he changes at the top tries to force this stuff down everybody and you see these mass resignations it really is a tragedy that so much talent um could first of all let itself become a bit too self-indulgent which i think they were before hughes came along and then they get this clueless leader who can't essentially nurture their strengths and try to edge them into an environment where they become slightly different a little bit more timely and relevant so they could keep up with the pace some of their direct competitors. So final question, the fact that news production has moved into the – and news consumption for that matter has, – has moved into this direction that you're describing, this very sort of au courant of, you know, <laughs> of the moment and sort of ephemeral um, style. Um, as a civic matter, is that a, is that a bad thing? I mean is that – we have to worry about the way that that shapes the citizenry that, can, that consumes news that way? Well, look, what it does is, in effect, yes, it creates certain difficulties. I mean, I've talked about this on a number of places, but if you look at the kind of mass reaction to Ferguson and the mass reaction to Eric Garner in New York, you take incidents that are tragic. One case, I think the Garner case wrongly decided. The other case, the Ferguson case, probably rightly decided. And all of a sudden, instead of having discourse, you get a wave of protest in which the question is how you could use the social media to organize a mass movement of one kind or another. Um, if one 
starts to sort of think about the nature of the cause here and then compare it with the real forms of civil rights dislocations 50 years ago at Selma and all the times before that, it's quite clear that one of the things that happens with this breathless style is that small events are made into large events. Large events that aren't there lead to judgments that are wrong about institutional reform and that what can clearly happen is you could get a populace which is restless on the one hand and anxious for reforms that won't work on the other. So it's not as though I think that the place for the new republic isn't there, but how it gets itself heard above this kind of din, I'm not really sure I know the answer to. I mean, you certainly can publish serious places, you know, uh, but even something, if you take it, say, the Weekly Standard with Bill Crystal and so forth, it certainly has a livelier tone than the new republic, and it's not so self-important in the way in which it does, and it's of the kind of journalistic style that's closer to the new republic than this singer stuff, and it does pretty well. I think the National Review on average tends to do pretty well, although they're more political, tied into the Republicans than I am, say, but they still do other kinds of pieces. I don't think it's impossible to do all this stuff, but I think it's gotten a lot harder. And I think that what you have to understand is that you're never going to turn a profit out of these things. What you have to do is to get yourself into a series of manageable losses. And when Chris Hughes took this from a million dollars a year, which was too high, up to five million dollars a year so he could improve the view, what happened is he made it impossible for this magazine to continue. My hope is he will sell it off to somebody else, pay off the past debts. These new people will try to hire back at least some of the old staff, and then maybe you can recreate this thing. But that's such a difficult maneuver to contemplate, and the staff, clearly many of whom are are quite attractive as journalistic writers, they're going to have other jobs, and the effort to put the pieces back together again with a new editor is not going to work, I don't think. Maybe Foyer will start some other thing instead of writing his memoirs or a book, uh, but it's going to take another sugar daddy of some form to come along and put up $20 million, be willing to see it all disappear over a period of years in order to get what they think to be the right kind of liberal discourse. You know, I don't know what to say about all of this. To some extent, when I think of the progressive movement, I'm I'm not pleased with the way in which they try to push things. My intellectual movements have always been on the other side. But by the same token, I think in a political environment, you want to have voices from all part of the spectrum. One would like to have worthy adversaries and occasional allies who have different intellectual time frames from yourself. And without the new republic in there, um, you're not going to see that quite as much. It's a void which is not measured solely in terms of its influence by the 42,000 subscribers that it had. I think its influence was greater than that, but you can take influence to the bank. And in the end, that's what drove Chris Hughes to basically pull the plug on this thing and God knows what's going to happen now, but I think the brand is actually tarnished beyond recognition given what he just did. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at hoover.org, and you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.